Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Leaders in Supply Chain podcast. I am your host, Radu Palamari, Managing Director of Elkat Global. And I am very happy and delighted, actually, to have with us today Paul Campbell, who is the SVP Supply Chain for Europe, for PepsiCo. Paul has spent a good uh, almost 30 years, really, with Pepsi. He started all the way from manufacturing, running plants, operations, and now, obviously, different elements of supply chain end-to-end the type of responsibilities and now he's the SVP for Europe for supply chain. So Paul, thanks for joining. Pleasure to have you. No, it's great to be here. So thank you for inviting me. Looking forward to it. And, and certainly people like you make me feel a little bit uncomfortable because I, you know, as you know, I'm by day I'm a headhunter. And if, if everybody was like you, never changing jobs, I would run into my business would run into <laughs> serious trouble. But as a way of starting the conversation, maybe Tell us a, two or three inflection points in your career. When you look back and you've achieved a lot, what were some of those points when you look and say, okay, this made a lot of difference to me? Yeah, maybe a couple of examples that, that can kind of illustrate that for me. I, I'm, if I wind the clock way back and I was running plants at the time and my boss asked me to go to head office and effectively run the planning aspects of the supply chain. So demand and supply planning, transport, network planning. And my response was, why would I want to go and do that? To which he said, because you don't know how to, and it might teach you something. And it was something that took an awful lot of persuading to get me to do it. But with hindsight, I look back at it, and it's one of those roles that almost sits on the periphery of the supply chain, because it's directly connected to, to marketing, because of innovation, with the sales guys every single day, dealing with customers, and then internally dealing with, well, did the factory make what it should have made? Did you did you ship the right stuff on the right day to the right customer? So it's, it's very much you know on the boundaries of the function, and, and as a consequence, a great learning about how the business is wired. And then the second thing was actually having worked in a plant where, for good or for bad, at the end of your ten or twelve hours or six hours, however long you spent in work that day, you knew that everything you did was down to you and your team. It was in a box and it was done. Suddenly to be in a role where actually you needed to influence the manufacturing director to make the right stuff, the sales guy to get a good forecast, the marketing guy to tell you. So it just really flipped this notion of conventional line management, not quite command and control, but top down that you can get away with candidly in in an operational environment where it's about quick decision making into suddenly I need to influence people, I need to think very differently, and I need to learn massively. So it was a, a real eye-opener for me. So that was one pretty early on in my career. Um, and then maybe sort of 10 or so years later, I was I left the UK and joined our um, concentrate business in Ireland. And that, that's a business that serves, it's a business to business, actually. It provides the flavours and the, the heart of our beverage business globally. Fantastic opportunity to, to see the whole of PepsiCo beverages from a global standpoint. And the real learning for me was I knew nothing about business at all, but I'd grown up for 10, 12 years in manufacturing and supply chain for, for snacks and beverages and pretty much could do every job. And that was the problem. I was trying to do everyone's job. So my boss said, no, 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 we're going to take you and put you somewhere where you don't know. And now you need to figure out where you're going to really add value. Because I turned up and I couldn't run concentrate plant because they're completely different it's it's fundamentally different it's about precision and accuracy versus speed and velocity which when you're making 
11 million packets of crisps a day in a factory versus four batches. It's suddenly fundamentally different. And, and I had to really sit back and think about what, what's my job as a leader. And I think it turned me from being a manager of activities and people into a leader who was thinking about where were the problem areas in the next six, nine, 12 months? What's the, the direction we need to take? And allowing the team to get on and do their jobs versus me as the boss interfering with them. So it really taught me, it took me a while to get my head around it because it was quite frightening to be taken to this place where you thought you couldn't help into one where actually you were creating a very, very different sense of value. So that was really fascinating experience and taught me an awful lot. And I think linked to that was, it, it, it also gave me this insight into a, a completely different physical world as well. I'd spent 10, 12 years in pretty monocultured organization in the UK. And, I, and, you know, without stereotyping, I'm pretty conventionally British. I wouldn't class myself as being particularly multicultural. And then to land in an organization where actually none of my team were British. I had teams in China, the US, Latin America, Caribbean, and trying to figure out where, what people meant by certain things versus what I thought they meant. And you know, the subtleties of really understanding the messages that people were creating. And that was, a, again, another eye-opener for me. It made me think much more broadly about how you influence people, but also how you listen to them and really understand what their problems are versus putting your lens on it. So I guess that two or three areas, I think, Radu, that, that have really helped me think very differently. And if I was to look back now, I do think they've shaped me to be a much more thoughtful leader and less one that, that thinks that being a leader means you know everything into one that, that is prepared to sit back and think a little bit more and give the team the opportunity to flourish and grow. That was some excellent, excellent examples. And uh, I mean, we've recently done a, a study that we will publish. We asked what is the most in demand or must have skill for supply chain professionals. And we asked a number of uh, the global executives and and again and again, it was the end-to-end -end understanding. And, and I would build a little bit or I'll go a little bit deeper because what, you know, the planning function end-to-end -end is one thing in supply chain, but end-to-end -end in a business. <laughs> so understanding the business end-to-end -end and then understanding supply chain end-to-end, -end, these two put together. And then plus that exposure that you've had to different businesses, cultures, geographies, I'm sure. I mean, I think these two combined gave you that openness and versatility yeah. that is so badly needed. So great. I, th I think that, Radu, without sorry, jumping across you at the risk of self-promotion, but I'll say it because I think the point is not about me, it's about the value. I think I'm where I am in my career because people don't see me as being a supply chain person. They see me as being a business leader who specializes in supply chain. So I'm expecting myself and my, my colleagues are expecting me to bring a business perspective. Yes, with a supply chain lens, but why are we launching those four products? I don't understand the campaign behind those. It doesn't make sense to me as a leader. It help me. So I, I have an expectation of myself to do that, but I know the people that I've worked with you know, over the years, that's what they expect from me. And it's a real unlock. But if I look within you know, the business, it's the one area that I would talk to my teams about, I want them to be business activists. You've got to be bringing solutions, but to bring solutions, you need to understand the problem. And the problem requires you to interrogate 
ask questions. So what are you trying to solve as a sales manager? What are you trying to solve as a marketeer? Because I may bring you a completely unique solution, but if you tell me I want to launch this product, is that the problem you're solving or is that just an activity? So that curiosity to get under the surface of what is it we're trying to solve here, I think is the big unlock for supply chain leaders. Maybe I'll piggyback a little bit because I keep repeating this a lot. And what you said, I'll just highlight the part with speaking the business language. So focusing on the business value and then speaking the business language, not the supply chain language and the supply chain jargon. And that therein lies, and I love your opinion as well, but there's a lot of very pragmatic but geekish supply chain experts out there that immediately lose anybody within whatever sales, marketing, finance, CEO level, board level, because they go too fast, too jargon, too like, what, what does this even mean? Like truck utilization, what do I care about that? <laughs> and like, yeah. you know, talk to me about, you know, increase of value per share or earnings per share. Then I, that I can understand <laughs> if I'm board level, but yes, that aspect probably is, is quite crucial. It's, it flows through. If you get the business, then you know how to speak to the business and both work hand in hand to you for you to have the credibility that you're indeed a business enabler. Absolutely. And I'll then flow into, so we talked about some of the case studies and initiatives that you've, you've undertaken at, at Pepsi. And this is probably a good example. Yeah, you mentioned that you listened to a client request, actually, in the initiative direct to Carton, and then you implemented it. So maybe tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, it, it started in our, our UK business. And those of you who know the UK business for savory snacks, it's, it's what we would call a small bag market, which means consumers tend to buy pack that is for one single consumption. So not really for sharing, and they'll eat it on one occasion, normally with their lunch. And we've grown a business through marketing and selling those small bags in a larger bag called a multi-pack. So you'll have maybe between 6, 12, 18, sometimes 24. Now, the nature of the, that, that product is it's a... It's a bag in a bag. And our customer was saying to us, well, there's an awful lot of plastic that is simply there to carry the product around. Oh, by the way, when it's on shelf, it can look quite ugly because it's, you know, you deliberately don't put air in it because it's not, no, no value in the, in the air in the outer bag. So it can look pretty you know, ugly on shelf. And it's quite awkward for our um, merchandisers to handle. But you've been like that for 25, 30 years. What are you going to do about it? <laughs> And it really forced us to, instead of just looking at incremental change, we just stepped back and said, well, what if we didn't use a bag? What if we used cardboard? And, and almost made it the cardboard, the carrier, and then redesigned the whole system around that. And suddenly you got, I'll come back to the, the sort of the sustainability benefits of it in a minute, but you then get a, a proposition that looks fundamentally different on shelf, much easier to merchandise. So it saves an awful lot of money for our customers. For the consumer, the experience is much better than this floppy pillowcase into a, a, a carrier unit that they can use at home as well. Oh, by the way, there's a massive benefit to the environment because you've now got that outer pack is 100% recyclable. And it gave us some, you know, some real opportunities to think very differently about, about the, the product and how we would market it. And then within the plant, some really, really smart little initiatives that we've been able to drive that you know that, that help us manage waste much better as a consequence it helps us you know recycle product much better so there was a whole sort of series of stack wins that came 
And it's been a fantastic piece of work to see come to life because it's been brought to life by our teams. This wasn't a go find something on the shelf, bring it in, you know, implement, execute a plan. It was, we need to think very differently. How are we going to do that? And by the way, we need to keep the, the current business going at the same time. So there's been a transition over the last 12, 18 months, particularly for these large format multi-packs. Um, and as I say, this stacked win on the environment because, you know, in parallel over the last four or five years as a business, we very consciously completely redefined our strategy into something called pet positive, which is, which is around we see our role to fundamentally change the way that um, our products impact society for the better. So, you know, we look at the value chain now as something we have really to, to take control of, of our destiny and the planet's destiny, given, given how we impact it. And the food system has a massive impact. So this is one small pillar in that journey to redefine our business, to get to be a, a carbon neutral business as we, as we move through the next couple of decades. So, you know, it, it's a big shift for us, but it's one of maybe 150, 200 we have to do over the coming years. Uh, but it's great that it was an initiative that came up from a customer. And then instead of resisting it, we embraced it and said, okay, fine, we need to think differently. And I guess the crux and where I want to ask you uh, some further questions, the crux of it is getting engaging the teams to actually execute because uh, there's a lot of very good ideas. There's, there's a lot that are quite obvious <laughs> and uh, even, and, and still companies fail. And the bigger they get, slower they get in terms of executing. So... I guess, share some principles of how do you keep your teams engaged and able to execute upon, you know, even this, this idea in particular to get it done? I guess there's a tension point there because as a business and culturally, we're, we're very much a can-do organization. So give me, give me a problem and I'll solve it. Now, the problem with that is we sometimes wait for the problem. Yeah, it's, you have to give me the problem first rather than I'll go out and identify this one in front of me. So this was a good example of a customer identifying the real problem and, and not quite forcing, but encouraging us to think very differently and therefore we were very creative. I think the bit that we're trying to get to is how, how do you pivot into you know, looking around corners for those problems before they become issues so that you're leaning into them well in advance? We are far from crack that, but, but I think that's the real breakthrough because I, I can guarantee if I put a problem in front of my team, they'll solve it. You know, but we probably should have solved it six months ago. We've been thinking harder about you know a different sort of start point. So um, I think that's an issue that we're, we're still working on. But we get to the how do you engage people in that ability to solve the problems and and and, and drive that engagement? Um, I think at the heart of it is you have to give people a sense of purpose in what they're doing. You've got to tie the, the activity to an outcome that, that they can see has a value for them. And I don't mean a financial value. So in this one we just talked about, you know, there's a very hard benefit around, you know, we're making a positive contribution to the environment here. Oh, and by the way, we'll satisfy a consumer, we'll satisfy our customers and all of that, but, but there's a real purpose in what we're trying to do. So I think, and they won't all have that same purpose about the environment, there'll be different reasons. But giving people that, that sense of purpose around what it is you're trying to achieve becomes a real way of, of engaging them. And we've seen as we've worked through you know, the last three or four years for anyone in supply chain have probably been you know, life-defining. And I hope we don't have to go through the same level of disruption again. But, but what, 
what we were able to create as we came through the pandemic particularly was we we made a very very simple set of principles mm. and as a consequence it almost lifted the clouds and the scales off people's eyes to go oh, okay this is how we can you know stay engaged with this business and we said that first and foremost we have to protect our people that's it you know there, there isn't a compromise there we're not going to put people in positions where you know this unknown virus that we know little about is going to put them at risk so you know from hand wash stations all the things that everybody did but from the get-go day one working in close proximity we had to stop all of our activity and it was incredibly intrusive to people and actually the people that were still having to go to work it was more intrusive to than those of us who were told to go and work from home because they were going into work and working in very difficult conditions but we laid out clear principles about you know we need to protect you first then we need to think about simplifying the business to make it easy to protect you in that environment how does that work and with those two or three clear principles we could then create a very clear purpose for them around so what's your job now because it's changed so I think that's a, a good example of where you can use that actually in a much broader scale in solving a single problem, but solving a systemic problem around clarity of purpose and then some very, very clear objectives and principles around. And when you look, um, I mean, I think you guys are running one of the most successful supply chains in the world. However, it's that's the thing with supply chain is never quite finished. Yes. So it's always a journey <laughs> of improvement. So when you look at what are your main areas uh, of focus, what, what do you still need to fix or improve? Or maybe not fix, but take to the next level in, in PepsiCo. I think there's I could either give you 100 things or one or two and they're probably equally valid in the response because you're right Radu, it, it's it's never ending and that's a good thing that's part of the, the challenge and the excitement of the role and i think we we also are constantly battling as an organization with the, the challenge of giving people freedom autonomy with the benefits you get from scale and simplicity because that feels like a constraint and we're a business that's grown quite organically and gives a high degree of freedom and autonomy to the operating units. So rolling out a single ERP and just saying, this is it, this is what we're going to do, is culturally quite difficult for us. So there's a, there's a tension point in that. So when you look at uh, you know the, the tension points going forward, I think some of that plays out in terms of how do we manage to drive the benefits of a, of a global business, but remain very relevant and local to our people and our consumers in the local market. Um, but it's a healthy tension in a really good way. It's part of the real fun in the business is trying to get that right. So I think that's going to be a continual challenge for us. I think another area that we, we're going to continue to see battling, and we touched on this briefly before, and I don't want to get into an AI conversation per se, but what I do want to talk about, is I think what technology and digitization is driving is the requirement for us as leaders to be very, very different in how we manage. Because I think the art of a leader in the future is going to be much more around the questions that we ask versus the answers that we know. Because, you know, traditionally being the rainiest person in the room or the person with the most experience or whatever that ends up being, you know, that gets thrown out the window with the technology and the digitization. Because, you know, true digitization is bringing the right information to the right people in a timely manner so that they can make, make a decision. If you don't have digitized business, then you're relying on a lot more of past experience or intuition 
and you have to go with with that experience. The, the digitization, you know, democratizes that information, and therefore you better ask the right questions. There. Because if you don't ask the right questions, then you can you can go down multiple outcomes. So I think that that becomes a real challenge for leaders because what made you successful, what got me to where I am, is probably not going to get me, you know, would certainly not get me there in the future. If I was to wind the clock back and start again, it, I couldn't build a, a career in the same way as I, I have for the last 25, 30 years. But it also requires us, I think, as leaders to let go a lot more. We have to, you know, we have to allow things to happen in a way that in the past we maybe didn't. So I think there are things that, that getting our heads around that as we go forward are quite challenging for us all. And literally, I guess we are at the point where the ground is shaking. I mean, you, you mentioned AI. Uh, again, we, we won't go into it, but it did <laughs> It did kind of felt like it came out of nowhere. I mean, it's, it, it had been brewing, but we didn't have something that you and me and our kids <laughs> could do their homework on, not, not at that level of simplicity. And all of a sudden now we're having hundreds and thousands of applications and it's only going to accelerate. So in that context where AI is likely to transform all aspects of life and work, what skills then remain or kind of stay relevant? Yeah, or what, what is it in the realm of supply chain that will still make us indispensable to an organization? Let's not look 10 years down the line because it's maybe a bit too far, but let's say in the next three to five years up to yeah. in, your, in your perspective. I've mentioned that knowing the right question to ask, I think is going to be, That'll take us well beyond five years. I'm convinced about that. Um, but beyond that, I, I think it's a little bit of something we touched on earlier, I think, Radu, which is it does require you to know the business maybe much better than you did in the past because that that connection and that information flow potentially can be so much more joined up than, than it had in the past. And therefore, a you know something that you think is only going to impact you and your team can ripple through the whole organization very rapidly. So understanding that, um, where some of the machine learning or some of the digitized processes we put in place may not get to that quickly enough. I think it, as, as a supply chain leader, we're uniquely positioned, I think, because we do sit in parts of the, we have a seat at more tables in the business than, than, than most functions. We may not have as loud a voice in every forum, but people want, I need you in the room when I'm talking about R&D. I need you in the room when I'm talking about sales. I need you in the room when I'm talking about innovations. I need you in the room when I'm talking about money. So we need to be in the room a lot of times. And I think it, it allows us to see much more of the business. And therefore, I think playing that business process end-to-end -end role as you look at how technology might advance, I think it continues to be a really important thing that requires us to, to, to stay relevant, I think. There was a recent conversation. I'll just give it as an example because I think it matches very well what you're saying. Um, understanding the business and then um, uh, it was Professor Yossi Shefi from MIT he said he said that algorithms and AI don't get context uh, which is in my mind very similar to what you're saying and and the example that that he was giving there were two online bookshops I don't know there was brands it's not the Amazon but anyways they were selling different books and one was uh, was positioned as a premium seller of the book uh, songs for kids let's take the book songs for kids and the other one was positioned as just a little bit less yeah so there was a there was literally a five percent pricing algorithm <laughs> differentiator so if if songs for kids was at 100 bucks the other guys would go 95. now the thing is that the dynamic pricing algorithm would be that okay then i'll go a little bit more i'll go 105 yeah for these guys and then the other guys would go okay now we go 100 and because it was dynamic and it was 
automated, it ended up in a completely nuts situation where the book ended up being listed at 23 million, and then the other ones was 22, blah, 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 minus five. <laughs> and then you can find, of course, the same book in Amazon for three bucks um, or whatever it was, <laughs> four bucks. And, and therein lies, uh, for now, for in the foreseeable future, context. Uh, machines and algorithms don't have context. Yeah, a colleague of mine shared a, a similar story with an e-commerce customer and they had a substitution algorithm that would take the item that was maybe not available and substitute with the second most popular item in that category um sliced ham was not available and sliced ham was was categorized as a sandwich filler the second most popular sandwich filler was sweet spread so people were ordering ham and getting sweet spread and what's the substitution with that because it was you know the algo had no context didn't know what it was doing <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there you go. That that's a good surprise for your you know lunch yeah. box. <laughs> exactly. Now you you were sharing that this is also a fairly new. To, I, I actually haven't seen. So you're 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 also the the company's diversity champion, yeah, at Pepsi. I haven't. Or am I getting it wrong? Me, me, no, no, not maybe not officially. Maybe it's something that unofficially. I'm, I'm very passionate about. Yeah, as, as good as, as good as it gets. Yeah. <laughs> So maybe, yes, exactly. Talk to us a little bit about how, because diversity is definitely, I think most companies say they are doing it. Uh, whether or not they live it is a different discussion. And I think you definitely strike me as somebody living it. So maybe tell us what, what does it mean to you? Yeah, I, well, I, I, I mean, it starts with simply having completely different perspectives and, and bringing them to the table in a way that is is open and transparent. But in order to do that, you, you have to be, proactive you can't just you know it's not a directive you know be be more inclusive you know yes thank you you have to create an environment where people feel that they can be themselves or and bring their the thoughts the ideas that they have and their personality into the room now the most visible one is clearly gender um it's something that in supply chain just the history would be that you know it's much more a male dominated environment um, what's critical for me is actually not the numbers. You know, the numbers are an output. If you get if you can get to gender parity, then then great. But that's an output from what you've done. The input is the most important, which is creating for people the environment where they feel they can bring the best part of themselves to work. And that requires us as leaders to be prepared to be uncomfortable. And what I mean by that is have completely different perspectives. Have people. You know, raising very different issues, and it requires us to also, you know, reach out to people in different ways. People have very different needs, and and you know, if I look at it from a supply chain perspective, I'll give you a great example about it. So we we've done a lot of work with my team over the years. So we're still got a long way to go to get to gender parity and supply chain in Europe. But the last four years, we've moved two percentage points every year. So gone, you know, thirty-four to thirty-six to thirty-eight. Yeah, percent of our of our population starting from a base of around you know, 20 24 seven eight years ago so we, we've moved a long way and more to go but one of the things we we've been looking at is it and it needs to be at all levels in the organization so how do you, you bring that talent through so that they they can contribute to all parts of the business and i ran a program called lift which is to bring our emerging female talent uh, it's a cohort of about a dozen of them and we run it twice a year we kicked it off last year 
and the first session was the 12 cohort, four people who were sponsoring various different elements of it and myself. And it was just to get to know each other for the first two hours. And it was a virtual program because we were still working remotely. It was probably the most inspiring two hours I've ever had because these female, young female leaders felt it was okay to talk about everything in their life, what was important to them, what mattered to them. And they were saying, but it doesn't feel like we can do that at work more because you, know, you guys are talking about the football last night or you're talking about, you know, who, who won this, you know, athletics race that you were in or who, it just, you don't create the environment that lets us bring this. And then when you heard their stories, these, these women had done the most amazing things and they were hiding them from people because they didn't think they were relevant. So it was inspiring to hear them and yet massively humbling to think that, you know, I'm part of a system that's, that's hampering these people. Um, and, and I think we all have to take responsibility for unpacking that problem and speaking openly about it. And, you know, the role of leadership in any environment like this is not to turn a blind eye. It's to shine a light on it, not onto the individual, but to shine a light on the problem and say, call it like it is. Is this what we're, we want to create? So you must have seen the statistic. I, I've got four daughters. Um, and if I had a son and they went through the same experience as my daughters, then it's going to take them 150 years for my daughters to earn the same as my son if we carry on at the same rate of trying to correct parity of pay. How is that fair? I mean, it just doesn't, it doesn't, can't compute that. And yet when you put it on the table, people go, oh, yeah, but yeah, but what? Yeah, that's not fair. What? Just because of the gender, we're doing that. So, you know, it requires us to be really intentional uh, about some actions we take, but also it, it requires us to be intentional about how we hold each other accountable. And it, it plays out that that approach plays out in many areas, but this one's something that that is sort of fundamental to me. Uh, and this it plays to a value set I've got, which is frustrates my wife, but it's a it's a, a, a value set of justice that you know if things aren't fair then I, I, I it just rankles with me and I'll be honest with you rather I hadn't seen it wasn't fair for the first 20 years of my career because it was invisible to me because I was this privileged white middle class male who was you know part of the majority and I didn't realize that that this was being unfair to people and not being consistent because you, you can be blind to it so Hence my point about shining a torch. It's something I, I, I guess you can tell it, it matters a lot to me. Yeah, absolutely. I can I can tell, and I find it fascinating. And I I'd um, I'd love for you to stay on the topic because I think this is this is where the most mm -hmm. valuable discussions come. And, and I'll, I'll I'll share. So I was, anyways. Let's not, let's not name where I was. So I was in. <laughs> and let's not stereotype the regions of the world. But anyways, we had an event with executives. And we invited, I mean, again, the, the parity in that part of the world, maybe it was 80% guys and 20% women that we invited. And we literally ended up with a room full of men. So <laughs> 25, 30 guys. The topic of diversity wasn't even on, on the agenda to discuss. Anyways, our MD was a female, but that was it. Yeah, she was the only, obviously, I'm not a female. And we talked about something else. Uh, you know, we were talking about book, the skills and so on. And then during the presentation, actually, one of the guys, it wasn't even related. He he said, look, uh, you know, this is good, 
but let's just acknowledge that we are in a room full of guys <laughs> like <laughs> let's just you know take a moment for that and then somebody else said hey but actually in our company you know that there's this marketing commercials well actually in our company we are 50 50 uh in senior management a guy again a guy saying that and then the first guy says well you might be but look around this room yeah <laughs> this particular room do you see any room <laughs> so it's like so it was one of those where you know companies tend to be and especially in today's world I think that at least the marketing spiel has changed that oh yeah we have all for diversity let's put you know we are all and and even I mean it gets to a situation where to, to be honest it's close to absurdity I mean uh, if I can call it as a headhunter where we are asked no oh, no you, you got to find us a female I'm like fine but is that really the solution I mean you you're looking at the senior level yeah is very far down the chain if you just look there if you've lost a lot of women which does happen because you right. did not put the current structure context help support how do you expect that you're going to have <laughs> women that have managed multi-billion dollar businesses when it's statistically proven that women are the first to drop out when they have kids because they don't have support because there's so many things so I think that's therein lies a you know a fundamental shift that needs to occur almost society from a society perspective and companies need to really get serious not just okay let us let us have 50 50 in the board okay fine yeah but are you really encouraging and fostering exactly. these women through the organization so over to you no I, I think the point is really well made which is why the program I just mentioned is not for my female leaders it's the it's two layered layers below them so that we're, we're drawing people in to feed the pipeline so that you've got talent that can flourish and that, and, it, and it's happening at a point where it can make a material difference because it's early in their careers rather than candidly you know in, in lots of organizations that the female leaders that have been successful are there because they can be good dummies for men they could they they, they, they pretend to be you know the type of leaders that men are they don't want to be so you know but that's the only way they can succeed and that that that's the rock again if you play the numbers game that's crazy that's not why you're doing this you're doing it to, to bring the breath the you know, a completely different set of talents and and i think that you have to do it at all levels in the organization you have to because it's not again it's not about levels grades whatever it is about you know the entire environment that people work in and it's not oh this is okay in the boardroom to your point we're, we're, we're parity in the boardroom and yet elsewhere in the business it's not that means you haven't created the environment that's conducive to it and that's i think is a, another failing that you know, many businesses have is that they can, if they're lucky, they might be able to recruit in female talent, but they leave straight away because the environment isn't what they want. Quite rightly as well. Now, as I said already, I'm privileged. I can get by in this environment. It's only my own conscience that's making it a problem. But, you know, resistance to the change, I think, sits in, in there's so much unconscious bias and then a lack of education and understanding because people apply their own lens to it. I don't see the problem, therefore there isn't a problem. And I think that, that really does drag us down. And I think if you are then tackling at all levels in the, in the organization, you've got a chance then of it, it, of it also creating its own momentum. Above and beyond it being a, just a policy or a decision, it will create, you know, you'll set a fire underneath the system and it will change. Um, but that then requires leadership call because people like me need to be giving people permission to do things differently and be it's okay it's fine that's right now I'm, I'm okay with that if we're not doing that and we're not supporting it and we're not providing that guidance 
then that fire will get put out very quickly. Love it. And I was sharing uh, recently with with one of my, you know, uh, well, I had our 20 years from graduating the high school. And anyways, she's, she's a colleague. She was working in a bank. She moved on from that bank. But she was saying that the leader that, that she had there was the best leader in her life. And then I asked her, so what, what made him such a good leader? And, and she was like, she, he always had our back. He always, you know, encouraged us. He always, you know, one time I, I literally shared some confidential information that the CEO told us not to share. And by mistake, I shared it with everybody. And I told him because I knew that the CEO is going to come after me. And you know what he said? He said, ah, you know what? We should be, be away with all this secrecy, secrecy and so on. So leave it, leave it to me. I'll say that I did it. It's okay. <laughs> so, so I think that that that's the, you know, these are some simple examples. I mean, ultimately, we are always as humans almost trying to figure out some sort of secret magic bullet that <laughs> somehow fixes problems and is that some key to leadership when in actual fact is a lot of common sense and, and basic principles. The repetition over time is the hard part, not <laughs> principle yeah. in itself. Uh, and I think the other one that goes with that, Radu, is you can get to a point, and I'm fortunate at the stage I'm in my career, when it's okay to stick your head above the parapet as well. It's okay for this guy that you that you're and you to say, I'll take the rap because I'm probably not going to get into trouble. It'll just be because I'm senior enough. You can take more risk with those sorts of things, so it becomes easier. Therefore, you know, people like me have got to make people feel it's not a risk deeper in the organization to just do exactly what you said. Just do what's right, do the right thing. Common sense, it's okay. And if it goes wrong once or twice, yeah, that's just life, we move on. Yeah, <laughs> super. Final question from me, Paul. Yeah. If you were to give one or two pieces of advice for the younger generation building or on the path of building their careers coming off university benches, what would that be? Mm -hmm. The first one, and I would, I, to be fair, this would be to them, and I talked to my team about this same thing. Be insatiably curious. Really ask questions. Try and understand why. And it's the point we made earlier on about this end-to-end. -end. If you can get under the surface, you don't need to be an expert, but be curious enough to figure out, well, why might that be the case? Why might it work that way? What's the business doing here? You know, that, I think it's really, really important. Now, the, the, the yin and the yang that, with, that goes with that, though, that is, but don't outsource the curiosity. Don't give it to somebody else in your team to go and you know find out for you. So if you've got a small team and you go, oh, go do this piece of work for me. No, if you're really curious, you need to satiate that need yourself, I think. So curiosity, I would advise people to do. The other would be, and it goes a little bit hand in hand with it, though, which is try and put yourself in the shoes of your business colleagues. So I mentioned this point earlier about what is the problem they need to solve. So when you know, the sales manager is saying, I need this unique product for my customer, and you're thinking it's going to drive complexity in the value chain, what am I going to do? Ask them, well, do you need a unique product? What is, what is it you actually, what is the problem you're trying to solve? Well, I need to give my customers some news, something that makes them feel good. Okay, well, maybe we can do that in a different way. So try and with that curiosity, try and turn it into, okay, so what questions is the business trying to solve? And I think what you'll get, you'll end up being seen in supply chains being a real business partner, because what you're bringing is solutions, not this classical, well, no, too difficult, too complicated. I've got to drive value at scale, leverage. You turn it into, okay, I understand you've got a business problem. Let's, let's get that laid out and see whether I can bring you solutions. So if you bring those two together, I think they can be, you know, real enablers then for people to look at supply chain as, as a value creation 
activity versus you know just a transactional part of the business love it well paul been a delight been a pleasure no, uh, i've enjoyed it thank you great great to see such passionate people and um, such beacons for diversity in particular like yourself so keep keep up the great work and um, and keep sharing with the world we need more of you in the corporate environment and yeah thanks a lot for for joining us today and for sharing not at all thank you thank you for listening to our podcast if you like what you heard be sure to go to www.elcotglobal.com and click the podcast button for all the show notes of the interview also, subscribe to our mailing list to get our latest updates first. If you're listening through a streaming platform like iTunes, Spotify or Stitcher, we would appreciate a kind review. Five star works best to keep us going and our production team happy. And of course, share it with your friends. I'm most active on LinkedIn, so do feel free to follow me. And if you have any suggestions on what, what to do and who to invite next, don't hesitate to drop me a note. And if you're looking to hire top executives in supply chain or transform your business, of course, contact us as well to find out how we can help.